All right, the first question I want to try to answer tonight is this. What is your answer to the position that some take that the King James Version is the only true Bible? Well, first of all, let me start by saying the King James Version is a wonderful translation. Um, and let me just read you a little bit of the uh, background on the King James Version. Miles Cloverdale was but four years old when Columbus discovered the New World in 1492. Born in York, England, he graduated from Cambridge, was ordained into the priesthood in 1514, and soon became an Augustan friar. He belonged to a group of Cambridge scholars, including William Tyndall, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, and his prior, Robert Barnes, who met at the White Horse Tavern to discuss religious reform. It's interesting. A friend described what Coverdale was like in those days. Under the mastership of Robert Barnes, he drank in good learning with a burst, a burning thirst. He was a young man of friendly and upright nature and very gentle spirit. And when the Church of England revived, he was one of the first to make a pure profession of Christ. Other men gave themselves in part, he gave himself wholly to the propagating of the truth of Jesus Christ's gospel and manifesting his glory. In 1528, after preaching against the Mass, Confession, and Images, in other words, uh, important parts of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Coverdale was forced to leave the Augustinians. During his time abroad, from 1528 to 1535, he worked with Tyndall in Hamburg and Antwerp on translations of the Old Testament. In October 1535, he published the first edition of his own Bible in Marburg, Germany. To prepare his first complete printed English Bible, Coverdale relied on the work of five translations, among them Tyndall's. The long dedication he wrote to Henry VIII and Queen Anne implies his expectation that the king would receive it favorably. With customary humility, Coverdale wrote, and I quote, "'Considering now, most gracious prince and inestimable treasure, fruit and prosperity everlasting that God giveth with his word and trusting in his infinite goodness that he would bring my simple and rude labor herein to good effect. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit moved men to the cost hereof, so I was emboldened in God to labor in the same. I do with all humbleness submit mine understanding and my poor translation into, into the spirit of truth in your grace so that I make this pro, pros, protestation having God to record in my conscience that I have neither wrestled nor altered so much as one word for the maintenance of any manner of sect, but have with clear conscience purely and faithfully translated this out of five sundry interpreters, having only the manifest truth of the scripture before my eyes. Today's Bibles still retain some of the phrases as well as the idea of chapter headings and of not including the Apocrypha with the other Old Testament books. The Coverdale Bible was so well received that the King's Chancellor, Thomas Cromwell, asked Coverdale to go to Paris to supervise the publication of an official Bible to be placed in every parish church in England. Begun in, begun in Paris, the second Bible known as the Great Bible had to be finished in London when the Inquisitor General of France forbade any further printing of the English Bible. The Great Bible was presented to Henry VIII by Cromwell in 1539. It proved to be Coverdale's greatest achievement and had a significant influence on the translation of the King James Version in 1611. 
Miles Coverdale died on January 20th, 1569, having provided the English with their Bibles in their own language. So a precursor to the King James Version was the work of this translation. And then one more historical background for the King James Bible. William Tyndall was born about 1494 and educated first at Oxford, where he was ordained into the priesthood and then at Cambridge, where he joined the Reformation. When he completed his education, he felt he needed to get away from the academic atmosphere of the university to be able to think, pray, and study the Greek New Testament on his own. His solution was to take a job as tutor for a wealthy family. During that time, he became convinced that England would never be evangelized using Latin Bibles because, quote, it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scriptures were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue, end of quote. However, Tyndall's efforts to get permission from the Bishop of London to translate the Bible into English were unsuccessful, so he left England never to return. Tyndall settled in Antwerp, where sympathetic English merchants hid and protected him as he translated the Greek New Testament and parts of the Hebrew Old Testament into English. His first English New Testament was printed in Germany in 1525. As Tyndall's English Bibles were smuggled into England, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London began attacking him fiercely. Finally, on June 18, 1528, Thomas Woolsey, an English cardinal, ordered the ambassador to the Low Counties to demand from the Low Counties regent that Tyndall be arrested and extradited to England. It took his pursuers seven years to track him down, but Tyndall was finally arrested near Brussels in 1535. He was held in a cold castle dungeon nearly for 18 months before his trial. A long list of charges were drawn up against him. Among them, he had maintained that faith alone justifies and that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation. Tyndall, in his early 40s, was found guilty at his trial and condemned to death as a heretic. Referring to the king's opposition to his English Bible, Tyndall said, quote, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, end quote. Then William Tyndall was strangled and his body was burned. In that Tyndall died, there were two, in the year that Tyndall died, rather, there were two English Bibles containing his translation of the New Testament circulating in England awaiting the approval of King Henry VIII. When the first was presented to him, the king, not realizing that it was Tyndall who had translated the New Testament, proclaimed, quote, in God's name, let it go abroad among the people, end quote. Two years later, the king directed that every church in England display, quote, one book of the whole Bible in English, end quote. Tyndall's dying prayer was answered. Tyndall's Bible translations were his lasting legacy. They were so well done that they make up 90% of the wording of the King James Version, published nearly 100 years later, and 75% of the wordings of the Revised Standard Version of 1952. And so these are some of the backdrops to the King James Version, certainly an excellent English translation of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. And so the question again is, what is your answer to the position that some take that the King James Version is the only true Bible? My answer would be that any translation of the Bible is based on the careful and thorough study of the original languages of the Bible manuscripts, um, Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. 
And so when I say Bible versions, I mean uh, Bible versions in English that have carefully studied the Hebrew and the Greek word-for-word meanings and come up with a translation. This is different than a paraphrase. A paraphrase is not a translation. Uh, paraphrase like the message by Eugene Peterson or Good News for Modern Man or the Phillips translation of the New Testament, not translation, paraphrase. These are not translations. These do not pay as close attention to the Hebrew and the Greek. They get more of a flow in the common English language, easier to read. So first thing you want to do when you get a Bible is make sure it's a version and not a uh, paraphrase. Now, the worth and the accuracy and the trustworthiness of any English translation must be judged by comparing the particular translation to the original languages of the manuscripts, the Hebrew and the Greek. The King James Version is a very good translation, as I have said, but it is not the only true one. It is not the only true one. There are many other English translations of the Bible which are also excellent and well representative of the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts. To judge a good or a poor English translation of the Bible, one cannot compare English translations. You can't look at one English translation and say, that's one thing, and one English translation and another version, and therefore say you just presume that one of them is uh, superior to the other. A good, to judge a good or a poor English translation, one cannot compare English translations. One must compare to the benchmark, the plumb line, which is the Hebrew and the Old Testament and Greek and the New Testament. And of course, one needs a working knowledge of those Bible languages to make that call. Too often, it can be that English-only readers of the Bible treat the King James Version as the benchmark, the plumb line, but it is not. The Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts are the plumb line. Now, for 34 years, I have preferred the New American Standard Bible translation for my preaching and teaching of God's Word. But I have never asserted, nor will I ever assert, that this is the only true Bible. It's a very good version. I don't run down other acceptable translations and versions that also refer to the Hebrew and the Greek, and the King James Version is one such translation. Now, the reason I prefer the New American Standard Bible, abbreviated NASB, for my preaching and teaching is that it clearly and closely follows the word order in the Hebrew and the Greek. And some that criticize the New American Standard Bible say that it's somewhat wooden or a little rough in its translation. It could be smoother. But I want that because the NASB is a careful consideration of the word order in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. And so I'm prepared that it's maybe not as smooth as some other versions, but I like to see the word order in the original replicated as a word order in a version. That's my preference. Now, where we come into some troubles, saying that there are very credible, uh, a variety of of English uh, versions, translations, where we can come into trouble is that sometimes people say that the King James Version is the only true Bible. I would submit with respect that I disagree, and that a person who does that, I would say with respect, can somewhat be unteachable at times to be shown that it's not, um, it's the Hebrew and the Greek that we have to go back to to see about any translation. 
Now, those who are extreme King James-only Christians, uh, sometimes they can be divisive in the body of Christ, and sometimes they can be unreasonable. For example, uh, saying that a version other than the King James Version, if that was used to lead you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, these who are so extreme in their view on the King James Version being the only true Bible, they would say that you're probably not even saved if someone led you to Christ using a version of the Bible that wasn't the King James Version. Another question I would ask respectfully of the person who thinks that the King James Version is the only true Bible is what did people do who believed prior to 1611 A.D.? Did they not have the Bible? Very accurate translation processes take place. For instance, the Hebrew manuscript writer, the copyist of the Hebrew, was so meticulous. Take a book like Isaiah. They would count up every Hebrew letter and every word in the 66 chapters of Isaiah. This is just an example. They did it for all the Old Testament books. And so they get thousands of letters making up these words. And then they would go and count all the letters one by one and mark the very letter that's the midpoint with respect to number of letters in a book like Isaiah. And then when the copyist copied from manuscript, another manuscript to a new manuscript, they would check that the Hebrew letter that's the midpoint of all the letters in the book of Isaiah exactly lines up. And so the process of the transmission of uh, copies of God's word from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek was very meticulous, very careful. We have a very accurate translation of God's word when we have the most uh, common versions of the English Bible that we enjoy. So don't get bogged down in uh, thinking that any one version is the only true word of God. Please accept the English version that you study out of and study it and receive it as from the Lord. This is a question more to do with the in workings of our church. And the question is, how is it that only men serve on the Calvary Bible Church's association? Uh, Maybe it is that some Uh, don't know. We have an association. We have a board of pastors, elders. We have a board of deacons, and we have an association. The association was started from the inception of this church to uh, handle the the legalities of this church. And um, back, I'm told, when that was established, there was some concern that no faction or no certain group would try to um, take over the ownership of the properties and the church building and so forth, and take the church in a direction doctrinally that wasn't accurate. So the question is, how is it that only men serve on the Calvary Bible Church Association? Second question, what is the scriptural basis for not including women? Third question, since our Calvary Bible Church Association represents the body of Christ at CBC, shouldn't the congregation know who they are, who's on the association? Really, there are three questions there, aren't there? There is no scriptural basis for not including women on the association of this church. It has merely been custom to date and not conviction based on scripture. This is because the association of our church handles only the legal matters for our church. The association does not teach the word of God. The association does not preach the word of God. The association does not take authority in the word of God over the members of this church. No, the association only deals with the legalities of our local assembly. And so there's not a biblical basis that 
member, female members that are otherwise qualified could not be on the association. There is restriction on the ministry of sisters in Christ within an assembly. It has nothing to do with the legal matters of an assembly, but it has to do with teaching, preaching, and having an authority in the Word of God uh, over males. And it says in 1 Timothy 2, the following, verse 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. These verses are making an injunction against uh, women believers having authority in the word of God to teach or to preach uh, to men. Uh, my wife went to Dallas Seminary, graduated in her master's degree in biblical studies, but she went not to ever uh, be a pastor, uh, not to ever um, teach the word of God to men. In fact, she refused to do that before seminary when she was in a youth group. She refused to teach the Bible to young men. She understood this, this conviction. So the silence that is enjoined here for women in the church is not, I would say, an absolute silence that they can't share a prayer request when invited to or what have you, but they can't stand up and say, I'm going to teach you the Bible. I'm going to preach the Bible. I do not believe that the New Testament allows for female preachers or pastors. Now, going back to the association, the 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 prohibits women for having authority in the word of God over men. But since serving on the association does not involve authority in the scriptures, therefore I am very open to having qualified women placed on the association. The congregation and the public have published access to who is on our association. It's not a secret. The names are regularly published in our church's prayer and praise note sheets that come out weekly. You can know exactly who's in the association. It's published. It's not a secret. And if you have any association-related questions, you could speak to any association member. Brother Brian Morey is our chairman on the association. Pastor Jerry Sawyer is our vice chairman. Brother Richard Evans is the secretary of the association. But you can speak to anybody who's on the association. And in Responding to this question, as I've been talking with uh, Pastor Jerry, and he's been talking with Brother Brian Morey, there is no uh, opposition, no hesitation to naming qualified uh, women to our association. And uh, that will probably be done because more members of the association are needed at this time. Good question. Question. Was a demographic study done prior to the pastoral board deciding to go to a new 8 a.m. worship service? And the answer is no because that decision to go to an 8 a.m. worship service was not a demographic decision. It was an evangelism and a disciple-making decision. The additional 8 a.m. service will open up sanctuary seating, which is needed because currently we are typically at 80-plus percent full on Sunday mornings. We were 80-plus percent full this morning, and there were a lot of our members away due to the cold winds and rain. And when a church is 80% full, a newcomer to that church is going to have a hard time finding parking, and they're not going to want to come in and sit in the front row, which are the seats that are usually open, aren't they? So the additional worship service at 8 a.m. will also free up more parking spaces 
And difficulty to find parking can also dissuade people from coming inside, especially if they're new and wanting to check out the church. And so the pastoral board arrived at our conclusion in prayer to go to an 8 a.m. worship service based on evangelism and disciple-making and prayer, not on demographics. And we expect, we fully expect, that it will be surprising who decides to attend the 8 a.m. service and who decides to attend the 11 a.m. service. We are quite sure that demographics will not be the only factor involved in a person's attendance decisions. There, it's not an age-shaped uh, thing. People are going to choose which service they go to for a number of reasons. Question. If my name was written down before the world began, can I lose my salvation? No, you can't. And the fact that your name was written down before you were conceived speaks to God's election of you and to the irresistibility of his grace toward you. To believe that one can do anything to make God reactive rather than proactive is to, and that is to erase your name, which he first wrote in his book of life, is to believe that a person can trump God's sovereign choice. Sorry for the reference to Trump. <laughs> to believe that one can do anything to make God's reactive rather than proactive is to erase your name, which is written in the book of life, is to believe that a person can trump God's sovereign choice, God's omnipotence, to draw to salvation in Christ and grace to secure in his salvation. Whom God elects, God saves. Whom God saves, he keeps safe and secure in his salvation. Let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Beautiful passage on eternal security. Uh, John, chapter 10, beginning at verse 27. Jesus is speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. So let me have you look up here at my hands. Let me read the verse and maybe show you what's going on here. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Imagine that being Jesus Christ's nail-scarred hand. When you trusted him to be your savior, he closed his hand on you to secure you in that salvation. That's enough to keep you secure, right? But it goes on. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father is spirit. He doesn't have a hand. It's a figure of speech to show us the strength of God the Father. So picture this. You trust Christ into the nail-scarred hand of Jesus. You are grasped, and then God the Father's figurative hand comes over Christ's hand, and you are safe, doubly safe. No one can snatch you out of that grip, not even you yourself. Not that you would ever want to. Now watch this, verse 30. I, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So think about this. Nail-scarred hand of Christ, figurative hand of the Father. You are grasped and held safe. 
watch up to my wrists, up to my elbows, up to my shoulders, up to my neck, up to one head. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So bless your heart who asked the question. You cannot lose your salvation. Your name cannot be erased from the book of life. Thank God. Question, what does the Bible teach about wives working outside of their homes? What does the Bible teach about wives working outside of their homes? Answer, first of all, in both the Old and the New Testaments times, women were far from equals to men. They did not have equal rights or roles. Their opportunities to work at all outside of their homes were very, very limited or more usually non-existent. Proverbs 31 comes to mind. The Proverbs 31 woman was very industrious. She said to have sold things that she made, and probably we could say that she sold them from her house. We might call it today a home business. That's my thought on it. In the New Testament, in Titus, one of the pastoral epistles, in Titus chapter 2, we have some very direct uh, teaching on this. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, which read, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. This teaching lines up with another pastoral epistle in 1 Timothy, which doesn't have as much detail to say about this topic, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So this is the prescriptive will of God. When you go to the doctor and the doctor writes a prescription, that's what the doctor wants you to take. He wants you to take that medicine at the times in the day that you are to take it in the dosage he is prescribing. That is the prescription. And what I've just read in Titus 2 and 1 Timothy 5 is God's prescriptive will for a wife. I will concede that. But will you notice that Titus 2.4 says, encourage, and it does not say insist. Titus, going back to Titus 2, 4, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be disordered, uh, dishonored. So Tim, Titus 2, 4 says, encourage the women in this way, but don't insist upon it. And encourage here in the Greek means to bring someone to his or her senses. It means, the word means to teach and to train. And so we also notice that in 1 Timothy 5.14, the word is want, it is not command. 1 Timothy 5.14, going back to what we have previously read. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. It's want. The Greek here is bulimai, which means to desire from one's reason. 
rather than from one's emotions. And so to me, it would seem that this, as in some other matters, that there is a prescriptive will of God and there is a permitted will of God. Another way to illustrate that is if you are in the medical field and you have Advil or some other painkiller, it says on the bottle, don't exceed so many pills uh, at a time or in a day. The fact is there's a margin there. There is a permissive leeway that if a person takes one more than is on the bottle, they're not going to die. All right? So it would seem to me that there is, in this case of what God is saying to wives about working in the home or not working in the home, working outside the home, is that there is a prescriptive will of God. God says the best thing for you to do as a, as a wife is to stay home and to work inside your home. But I believe that there is a permitted will of God in this matter as well. Let me give you three examples of the prescriptive will of God and the permitted will of God. Divorce. In the Old Testament, Moses wrote a certificate of divorce to give a divorced woman protection. We know from Malachi, the last book of the uh, Old Testament, that God hates divorce. Malachi 2, verse 16, quoting God, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So the prescriptive will of God with respect to marriage is no divorce. But in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1, there seems to be a permitted will of God in this um, matter. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, immorality in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So the prescriptive will of God is if you get married, don't get divorced. Let death of one of you dissolve your marriage until death us do part. That's the vows Beth and I made on April, April, August 6th, 1983, uh, 1983. And we have said to each other, and now to our children that God has given us, that divorce is a swear word in our home. It's a swear word. We don't use it. Never. So the prescriptive will of God on divorce is God hates it. But the per permitted will of God would seem there's some regulation to it, some uh, protection for women who are divorced, that they would have some protection. In Matthew 19, Jesus addressed divorce and remarriage. And he said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, the question has become to Jesus, what about divorce? Because there were two schools of thought in rabbinical teaching at Jesus' time. There was a liberal school of thought that said you could divorce your wife literally for burning the dinner. And there was a conservative school of, of interpretation to say you could not divorce your wife except you would commit adultery if you got remarried. And so they're coming to Jesus looking for him to get in trouble in hot water with either side of the rabbi's camps. And Jesus said to them in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. So there's an example, I believe, of the prescriptive will of God and the permitted will of God in divorce. What about the Sabbath? The Sabbath in Exodus 20, the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments, you know it, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, if you were to do a study on the Ten Commandments, and that's a very worthwhile thing to do, you would see that all of the Ten Commandments are reiterated, repeated in the New Testament except one, the Sabbath. It's not reiterated in the New Testament. That's why the believers after Jesus' resurrection and ascension in the baby church decided to move the day of worship from the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, to the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday. That's why we worship on the Lord's Day, rather than on the Jewish Sabbath day, which is Saturdays. So there seems to be a, per, a prescriptive will of God for the Jewish people, and then a permitted will of God. If you see this per, uh, permitted will of God, in Mark, it jumps out at you off the page quite dramatically. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 27, listen to what happened in Jesus' ministry. Mark uh, 2 23 to 27. And it came about that he, Jesus, was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he, Jesus, said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except for the priests, and he gave it also to those who were with him? And he, Christ, was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So another case, I believe, of the prescriptive will of God and the permitted will of God. One more, uh, singleness, uh, being unmarried. Under inspiration, Paul wanted and wished for all men to be unmarried like him, but equally under inspiration, he allowed for men to marry. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Now concerning the things about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Permitted and uh, per, uh, prescriptive, rather, and permitted. And then look at verse 7, same passage. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. So I think there are examples of the prescriptive will of God and the permitted will of God within the same issues. So let me ask some very practical questions. If we are to believe the scripture is rigidly teaching that a married woman is never to work outside of her home, what if she's abandoned or divorced by her husband? What if she becomes a widow? What if she has a husband who is unemployed or underemployed, or financially utterly irresponsible? What if there is no social safety net offered by her government? What if there are no home-based businesses open to her? What if there is no possible financial support from her church or her family or her friends? I would submit, 
in any of those situations, she must work outside of her home, which is the permitted will of God, I believe, in these circumstances. Of course, Scripture never contradicts itself. And across that broad prohibition of wives ever working outside of their homes has to be informed by a passage like Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, the verses I'm going to take you to apply to so many situations, but certainly I believe to this situation. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I asked of thee. Be do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I believe that in situations, the hypotheticals I've shared with you, that that wife needs to work outside of her home or she'll starve and so will her children or she'll be tempted to steal. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 also, I think, applies to this scenario. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. One of the things I struggle with since I've been here is all the persons that are begging in the streets to discern what's legitimate need and what is not. What is going to be used for food and basics of life and what is going to be used for alcohol or drugs? It's a struggle for me. And what about all the people that are able-bodied who are begging in the street? This verse comes to me. You know, if, if a young man is in the street, he's able-bodied. The verse says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. I think that applies to the hypotheticals I've raised, the certain situations I've raised to Christian wives where they're driven by circumstance to need to work outside their home. And so I would encourage that we must not look down on or judge a Christian woman who in agreement with her believing husband is working outside of her home to provide necessities for herself and for her family. When a Christian woman to the detriment of caring for her in-house responsibilities works outside of her home for luxuries or to retire debt wrung up by overspending and living beyond her family's means, then that's a totally different story. A question. In view of our pastoral leadership team of pastors, the majority of our pastors are aging, aged, or very aged. What are your plans or strategies in recruiting younger generation of men to be trained to be pastors? Great question. I'm glad it was asked. I'm very excited to announce to you this evening that beginning last Monday, February the 1st, I began teaching an ordination class for pastoral board hand-picked men. There are 12 men in the class, one of whom is already a pastor. So he's there to encourage us. And this, this class, this ordination class, will cover three areas of expertise, Bible knowledge, theology, and practical pastoral care case issues like, what do you do to minister to a family from God's word when they have a prodigal child? 
What do you do when you learn of a family in the, in the fellowship where there is physical abuse? What does the Bible say to that? What does the Bible say when a baby dies? Practical pastoral care case studies these men will be learning um, with me and with each other. And at the end of several months, I don't know how many months, each man will request, if they so choose, an individual oral examination by the pastors of our church to test him on his Bible knowledge, on his theology, and on his practical care case studies. There'll be three possible outcomes if a man undergoes the oral examination. One, he'll pass. Two, he could pass with qualifications. Or three, he will fail. If he passes with qualifications, he may be told, you have to brush up on end times events. And so if he passes everything else, he just focuses, refocuses on end time events, scripture on end times. And then he's reexamined on end time events. If a man fails, we're not going to throw him to the uh, scrap heap. We have asked him to be in the class because we believe his character is such that 1 Timothy 3 applies to his life. But we'll encourage him to take all or some of the course totally over again. You're going to work with him. And I expect that with hard work, prayer, and the help of God, all of these men in this ordination course will pass and be ordained to be pastors in Calvary Bible Church along with existing pastors. And actually, there was two pastors already on uh, pastor board that were in the class on Monday, two. And so it may be that we could have 10 uh, new pastors ordained maybe in a year. I don't know. Let me tell you who's in this class, so you'll pray for them. Anthon Wallace, Nicholas Rogers, Michael Roker, Craig Knowles, Patrick Rutherford, Randy Pierce, Chris Cartwright, Drew Fowler, Paul Worrell, and Tommy Albury have come in as already ordained pastors, Nathan Sawyer, and Thaddeus Pierce. I think you would agree that on the whole, these are not aged men. <laughs> these are young men. Praise God we have that many young men. And this is, a whole, this is a whole working out of Titus 2, verse 2. And by the way, one of the reasons after doctrine that I was led to come here to be your pastor is that this church has raised up pastors and ordained them from within the assembly. I love that. And this new ordination class is wanting to do more of that. I love that. I don't know how many years God will give me on earth. I don't know how many years I'll be privileged to pastor. But in the last years of my life, however long... I want to pour into men the scriptures, theology, practical pastoral care, truth, because I'm standing before you tonight with many older pastors than me that did that for me. They took me under their wings. They taught me. They took me on pastoral calls. They brought me into being a pastor before I was a pastor. And I feel I owe it to God to pass along that knowledge to younger men who are called to serve as pastors. 2 Timothy 2.2, this is what's going on. This is what's so biblical about what's going on. You, therefore, verse 1, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a chain, a passing on of truth. I love it. God, the Father, is pleased in this aspect of our assembly. Question, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, why can't I speak in tongues like the early church or Paul 
who spoke more than, uh, uh, more than the others? Why can't I be carried away in the Holy Spirit to help someone understand the Word of God? Why aren't there more visible healings and miracles, etc., today? And I don't mean to be flippant with my answer in the start of my answer, but here's the reason. Because you live in the wrong century. Tongues and supernatural transportations to other places and healings and miracles were first century phenomena. In the first century, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Savior. They are called apostles. Acts 1. Acts 1. It defines what an apostle is. <laughs> there are apostles on this island who aren't apostles. Acts chapter 1. What is an apostle? What does God say is an apostle? Is it a seminary degree? Is it a robe you wear? Is it the size of your church? No, 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 no. Acts 1, 21 and 22. Remember, Judas Iscariot has suicided. He was never a believer in Christ. He was wanting Jesus to provide him with wealth and security and overrule Rome. He was never a believer. Jesus knew that. But then when he sold Jesus for the price of a common slave, 30 pieces of silver, he had remorse come over him after he did that, and he hung himself, and he suicided. So there was need to replace Judas Iscariot with a bona fide believer, but not just any bona fide believer. Acts 1.21, it is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. Watch, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. The way, what made you an apostle is you believed in Jesus, you followed Jesus while he had an earthly ministry, you uh, saw him alive from the dead, and you were selected to join the other apostles. That is what an apostle is. That is what an apostle is. And in the first century, when the baby church was just forming, just getting to crawl before it walked, the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, had a new, with respect to the Old Testament, gospel. The gospel that they had, which was new because of the further revelation of God in Jesus Christ, needed validation. It was new. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. But after the cross, in the shadow of the cross, your faith had to be placed in Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, buried, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father. It was a new message. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3, this is the new message that needed validation when the baby church was crawling before it walked. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Will you notice there are two parts to the gospel. Christ died for our sins, part one, and second, he was raised from the dead on the third day, part two. Will you notice that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures? The Old Testament predicted Messiah would die for sins, and that he was buried. That's proof that he actually died. Those Roman mercenary soldiers who executed thousands of people by crucifixion pronounced him dead. Joseph of Arimathea took him down, put him in his tomb. Christ died for our sins. The Old Testament scriptures predicted it. He was buried, proving that he was actually dead. Second part of the gospel, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures 
uh, predicted that Messiah would live after dying. And what was the proof of his resurrection from the dead? He appeared alive after being dead to Cephas and then to the 12, verse six, and then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. 500 persons don't have the same hallucination. He appeared from the dead because he was alive from the dead. That's the gospel. That's what needed validation. And these new apostles, these eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ were to herald, to preach that message. And God was to validate it as being true with tongues. Tongues are not gibberish. Tongues are not unintelligible speech like it's passed off today. Tongues were known language unknown to the speaker. That was tongues, Acts 2, you can check it. Transportations like the Ethiopian eunuch experienced when the apostle came to him. That was to validate the gospel. Visions validated a new gospel. Many healings by the apostles validated uh, the new gospel. In fact, the apostles had so much validation of healing people that their shadows healed people. Their shadows. And the apostles even raised the dead. It was a validation of a new message rooted in Jesus Christ. And the validation spread from Jerusalem beyond. And in Acts chapter 1, listen to the spreading. The validation spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1, verse 8. But you, apostles, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He hadn't yet been sent. He was shortly going to be sent. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So picture this. If the sea is completely calm at Montague Beach tomorrow morning early, completely calm, and you get a big stone off of the beach and you throw it into the calm sea, it will splash. And then the ripples will go out from the splash. The splash was Jerusalem. The next ripple out from the splash was Judea. The next ripple out from the, uh, the splash was Samaria. And the next ripple out from the splash was the uttermost parts of the earth. And when you look at when tongues appeared in the book of Acts, it's always at a seam point between the ripples. When the gospel moved first from Jerusalem to Judea, tongues. When the gospel moved from Judea to Samaria, tongues. When the gospel moved from Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, tongues. And if a person believes that tongues are for day, why are tongues not mentioned in the New Testament after 1 Corinthians? Because they've ceased. And what passes off as tongues in many churches now is gibberish unintelligible speech. It's not a person standing up and being able to speak fluent Chinese because there's a Chinese person who doesn't speak English and they can hear their language and trust Christ. That's what tongues were. Tongues have ceased. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 that they would. I don't know why this is hard for us to see. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. It's clear. In the book that last mentions tongues, 1 Corinthians, God says, tongues, they will cease. Apparently, as a sign-proving gift, tongues ceased in the early part of the church age, 1 Corinthians, and tongues will not appear again 
Not in the tribulation, no mention in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, no, no mention of tongues. No mention of tongues in the millennium when ideal conditions are on earth in Revelations chapter 19 and 20. There's no mention of tongues. And there's no mention of tongues in the new eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, perfection forever and ever and ever. No mention of tongues. So the person who asked this question, why don't you speak tongue? I speak in tongues because you live in the wrong century. The Bible is completed and tongues have ceased. God has willed it to be so. They're no longer needed to validate the gospel message because there is now 20 centuries of validation. If you see Jesus Christ as the foundation of a skyscraper and every century of followers of him being a story, first century, second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century, all the way up to the 20th century, and right now the 21st floor of the skyscraper, the 21st century is building believers. And all the transformed, radically changed lives that have trusted Jesus for salvation and become followers of him, they're the proof that the gospel's true. We're the proof that the gospel's true. We don't have to inject first story phenomenon into the 21st story to make the gospel validated. No, 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 no. Now, when the skyscraper of the church was first being built, the foundation of Christ and his cross and his empty tomb needed validation proofs. That's when sign gifts flourished in the first century, Hebrews 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now here's the salvation being talked about. After it, the salvation, the gospel, was first spoken through the Lord, foundation of the skyscraper. It was confirmed to us, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, was an eyewitness apostle of Christ by those who heard, apostles, God also bearing witness with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. That's plain. So don't try to put first, centuries, first century, first story in the skyscraper phenomenon and make it normal in the 21st century in the 21st floor of the skyscraper. And you are not a deficient Christian because you don't speak in tongues. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you were made to drink of the Holy Spirit when you trusted Jesus. You don't need to speak in tongues to show that you're spirit-filled. You don't need to speak in tongues to say that you're a true Christian. I could get into way more with that, but I, I'll back off. Question. This is from a person outside of our church. She writes, as a female in the Brethren Church, how can I broach the subject and have my church elders implement Bible study that equips us to be effective witnesses in order to evangelize our community? Uh, that's a great question. I appreciate this person's heart to reach the community for Christ. There are different kinds of brethren churches. There are open brethren, there is closed brethren, there is very conservative brethren, there is more um, open brethren. So I don't know which particular brethren church this sister comes from, but if the particular brethren church of which she is a part sees a biblical prohibition on women speaking at all about anything, 
so as to keep silent, absolutely silent. Then, sister, if you are married, you should raise your questions or give your suggestions to your husband. And he can relay them to the elders. If you are not married, you can go to one of the elders' wives. Again, I do not know what church we're talking about. I've taught earlier in this evening that I believe the silence prescribed in 1 Timothy 2 is not an absolute rigid silence, but it's a silence with respect to taking authority in the word of God over men. But if you are in a very conservative brother and church, sister, then, and you're married, then share your ideas, your concerns with your husband, and he can take them to the elders of the assembly. And if you're not married or you're a widow, then please feel free, I think, to go to the elders' wives and talk with them. And just as a scripture, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So watch this. This is saying there's a functional order in the Godhead, in the marriages, and in assemblies. God the Father is head over God the Son. Not my will, but thine be done, he said in Gethsemane. The Father over over the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus over the man or the husband. The husband over the wife doesn't mean that one is more valuable than any others. Can you say that God the Father is of more value than the Lord Jesus Christ in the Trinity? No. And similarly, you cannot say that a man is of more value in the eyes of God than a woman. It's just a functional order. That's all. A functional order we should hold to. 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I have two minutes to answer an interesting question that was submitted just as I walked into the sanctuary. Um, In precatory prayers are prayers in this book of Psalms where the, the psalmist prays malady, destruction, pain on his enemies. And the question is, is that for us in this age? Are we supposed to have enemies that we recognize and then pray to God and say, strike them dead, give them pestilence, may their children rebel, whatever. Are we to pray imprecatory prayers for our enemies like the psalmist seemed to do? Well, not seemed to do, they did. They did. Well, the Bible is a progressive revelation, right? You start in Genesis and topics are raised and they are woven through all of the progression of scripture. So we know a lot more about a topic that was raised in Genesis, salvation, by revelation. We know a lot more. We're learning more about salvation as we move from Genesis through the Bible to revelation. The Bible is a progressive revelation and it never contradicts itself. So here in the Old Testament book of Psalms, we have followers of God, believers in Yahweh God, the true God, praying imprecatory doom on their enemies. But then we have Jesus say, pray for your enemies. (laughs) Pray for those who persecute you. What is it to love someone who's your friend? The real thing is to love someone who's your enemy. So is this 
Is this contrary? Is this contradiction? Was Jesus contradicting the Old Testament concept of imprecatory prayer? Jesus was superseding the Old Testament practice of imprecation. You know why imprecation had a place in the Old Testament? Because as we saw this morning in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abram, a Jew, that out of his progeny would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And Jesus Christ in his humanity was Jewish. And so there was a line of descendants that needed to be preserved so that in his humanity, Jesus Christ would be born a descendant, humanly speaking, of David the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so God allowed these imprecations in the book of Psalms because what was at stake was Messiah. What was at stake was global salvation. What was at stake were big things. And so God said, yeah, you can pray for the destruction of your enemies. In fact, God, when they came into Canaan, said, wipe them out. Just wipe them out. Because God was preserving the messianic line. A lot was at stake that Joshua, when he entered the promised land, would succeed and not be exterminated by the Canaanites. So the answer is, are there imprecatory prayers in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Should you pray imprecation, judgment, death, disease on your enemies? No. You should love your enemies. You should pray for those who persecute you because Christ has come. God preserved his line, his Jewish humanity. God preserved his line. He came. He fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He laid down his life, a lamb for sinners slain. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. So we do not pray imprecatory psalms in this church age. I hope that helps. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for this assembly that is thinking about questions of how the Bible fits life. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken and you have not stuttered. We thank you that we can understand your word. It's comprehensible because the author of the word, the Holy Spirit, lives inside us as blood-bought children. We pray that we continue to be students of the word like Berean Christians in Acts 17, studying, examining the scriptures to see what I'm teaching is right or wrong. Oh, Lord, make us to be Berean Christians. Thank you for bringing us out tonight. Please give each and every person a blessing for having been here and each and every person safe passage to their homes and the new week ahead. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.